before I open up Acts chapter 2, I heard about something last night from some friends um, about uh, a thing called furries. This was, this was news to me about uh, people who identify as cats and dogs and those types of things. Um, it saddens me that that's a thing for some reasons I think that should be obvious, but more than that, here's the, here's the deal. Theologically, it, it saddens me because of the theological underpinnings of it. And, and rather than just giggle about it or slough it off or, or, or just put it out of mind because for some people it just seems silly, we need to think theologically about all things. And so in thinking about our culture and some stuff that, that 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 is being promoted in our culture, thinking theologically about it, I have some concerns. The devil's agenda is pretty simple, is to destroy, disfigure, and distort the image of God. That, that's the goal of the evil one. My, my first concern is this. In Genesis, the Bible tells us theologically that male and female were created in the image of God. That in the image of him, he created them, both male and female. Not just that the individual human is created in God's image, but the very essence of what it is to be masculine and the very essence of what it is to be feminine is the image of Almighty God. What has, what, what's happened is, is, is we've confused value with function. Each are equal, male and female, masculine and feminine, are equal in value but different in function. Not better or worse in function, just different in function but equal in value. And any time we, 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 we seek to, for the sake of equality switch those things, change the function in order to promote value, we do a disservice to the image of God, which is fully masculine and fully feminine. And, and those two things cannot be shared or passed off to the other. In doing so, it distorts the image of God. And when the culture pushes to remove that which is intended to be masculine and that which is intended to be feminine, what's happening at the heart of it, at the foundation of it, and this is where most people don't understand, at the heart of it, there's a demonic influence whose desire is to distort, destroy, and disfigure the image of God. It's a theological issue. 
And most people, and dare I say most Christians, don't understand the theological issue that's underlying this whole thing. When a man, when a male can identify as female and a female identify as male, it's not just a social construct. It's just not a decision. It's not something that was at the heart of it is a demonic influence that's intended to distort and destroy and disfigure the image of God that is in itself fully masculine and fully feminine at the same time. The moment you take what it is to be masculine and say that no longer exists or that which is full purely feminine and say that no longer exists or they're interchangeable, what has happened is we've allowed the image of God to be destroyed and disfigured. It's a theological issue. And it concerns me. The, the other thing that concerns me is that when humans identify as something that is non-human, in other words, as an animal, the very expression of the ultimate of God's love and purpose for Christ's redemption is erased. Jesus did not come to earth and die on the cross and be raised from the dead for cats and dogs. He did it for the image bearers of the Father, men and women. And so the moment we take what human and say, I identify as that which is not human, I've erased the very purpose of the redemption of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. Like it or not, it's human, it's humans, it's male and female that bear the image of God and that have received the breath of God, not plants and animals. And so what I see happening is, is, is a real insidious work. And at the heart of it, this may not be on the forefront of it, but at the heart of it, the foundation of it, is a demonic work of the evil one to distort, destroy, and disfigure the image of God where there no longer exists male and female in its totality and further to erase the need for the redemption of Christ on the cross by erasing what it is to be human now. And it saddens me. What really saddens me is that children who are swept up in this are being allowed to by parents who are ignorant theologically. And it's the parents' job to provide for their children a theological foundation by which to make decisions in life and to grow into what God has birthed in them in the creation in their mother's womb of what it is to be fully human and fully masculine or fully feminine at creation in the womb. And when parents are ignorant theologically, they may have many reasons why they agree or disagree, but until you boil it down to the theology of it and the image of God of it and the sanctity of humanity in it, it's just your opinion. And your opinion doesn't matter when it's matched up with someone's choice. 
But the theology of Scripture and the identity and the magnification of God does matter regardless of your choice. So pay attention. Wake up. There's a theological underpinning to the course of our culture. And it must not be agreed with and supported and affirmed as normal. That which distorts, disfigures, and destroys the image of God and what it is to be human but it has to be approached by disciples of Jesus in great gentleness, with mercy and grace. In the affirmation of the beautiful and purposeful image of God that he has entrusted to frail, broken people, to say even in your brokenness and frailness, you bear the image of God and that in its masculinity and that in its femininity is to be celebrated and supported and held in wonder. Not fluidly move through as if it doesn't matter because you are an image bearer. In your masculinity, in your femininity, and he chose you that way. You have purpose in that. So in great gentleness, with mercy and grace, we affirm that which God has created because he chose you to be that part of his image in this world. And it matters, and you matter in it. Male and female, he created humanity in his image. And I want you, I want us to step into that. It is beautiful. This has nothing to do with Acts chapter 2. I just was here this last night, and I thought, it may be easy for some to smirk at or think it doesn't matter and I don't want us to do, I want us to think theologically about these things and have a theological understanding about them because they matter. Not for social reasons, not for cultural reasons, not for for self-health reasons, none of that. They matter because it, it, it impacts the theology and the understanding of the image of God in this world. And without an understanding of the image of God in this world, everything falls apart. Everything. Need to go on Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, we've just left off with Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, and then he lived uh, on this earth for 40 days, showing signs that he was, was a physical resurrection in bodily form. 40 days. And he, and he told his disciples, just wait for me and, and, and wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And, and so they're waiting. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 2, they've waited 10 days. He's ascended to heaven after 40 days. They've waited 10 additional days without him, without any indication. They're just waiting. 
Now, now understand what has happened. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, this is what Paul, looking back on the history, recounting the history of this whole thing, he says, after that, he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at, at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So some have died. He said, but, but, but at, he appeared to a lot of people over 40 days. And during that 40 days, there were 500 he appeared to. Now, when we pick up in Acts chapter 1, after the essential, look at this. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about how many? Where's the other 380? There were 500 people that saw and experienced the resurrected Christ that we have to assume we're believers. Where's the other 380? What, what strikes me right from jump here is that those who are present receive what God's pouring out. Those who are not, do not. You've got to show up to where God's moving. God does not pour out what he's going to pour out to the person at home by themselves, worshiping, you know, in the quietness of nature or anything like that. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That word Pentecost, this is important. You go back to Leviticus 23. It gives us seven festivals instituted by God for his people to, to practice. The first of those was the festival of Passover. And that was the remembrance of when the people were in Egypt, they took the blood of the lamb, put it over the doorposts of the, of the houses, that in the final plague of God over the Egyptian people to let his people go, he had the death angel go there, and, and, and the death angel passed over all the homes that had the blood of the lamb over the doorposts. And so this was the festival to commemorate that event. The second festival was on the very following day, which was the festival of unleavened bread. And they took bread, removed the yeast, which was the sign of sin. So they're saying that sin has been removed, and they take that which is left, wrapped it up in a napkin, and hid it for a couple days. The third festival was the festival of first fruits. And, and that was the festival where that which had been planted to the ground was raised to life, and everything coming after that first truth that had the same DNA of that which was raised would also be raised. Those were the first three festivals. The fourth festival was Pentecost. And they were told to count seven weeks, 49, and then the day after, the 50th day, Penta means five, the 50th day, this was the day of Pentecost. Now this so in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, this is that day. It's the day of that celebration, the 50th day, the Pentecost day. And what we will see is that God will pour out his spirit upon his people. Now, the interesting thing is that in Hebrew, Pentecost is Zman Matan Torah, which means literally the season of the giving of law. The rabbis taught that the Torah, the law of God, was given by God to Moses at Sinai, on the day of Pentecost. So the rabbis taught that it was on this day that God, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, that God gave him the Ten Commandments and all the, all the legalities of the law. This is where they would say their nation got their constitution. It was on the day of Pentecost. In the Old Testament, this is what they would teach. And so on that day, they're all gathered together. Okay, this is important. I'm going to come back to this. Don't forget what I just told you about Pentecost, okay? Don't forget that. You remember it? 
You don't give me much hope. Just remember this, okay? I'm going to come back to it later. So in verse 2, 3, and 4, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Okay, so a sound like a violent wind. So there's, there, there's something that's audible, that's physical about this. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So they're in this room, they hear this whole, this, this commotion, and all of a sudden, what looks like tongues of fire rests on each of their heads. There's 120 of them. How many tongues of fire did they see? No, they saw 119. You can't see what's on your own head. I think that's significant, honestly, and here's why. Because the more we look at ourselves and our own glorification of God in us, the more egotistical we, self-righteous we become. And so they, got, they saw God in each other. The, what scenery tongues of fire came and rested on each one. Now, this, this is the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's what, that's what this is. So Holy Spirit that came to rest on each one. Now, if you understand, most people, if you're not in the Pentecostal church, you don't understand the role of the Holy Spirit very much at all. And if you are in a Pentecostal church, you're really confused about it. So let me just give you a little bit of understanding here. The disciples had already received the Holy Spirit within them. This is not that. This is different. In John 20, verses 21 to 22, Jesus, in his resurrection, meets with his disciples, and it says he breathes on them and says, receive you the Holy Spirit. So he's already breathed on them the Holy Spirit. They've already received the Holy Spirit within them. This is different. This isn't the reception of the Holy Spirit within them. This is the giving of the Holy Spirit upon them. What we know biblically and theologically is this, that at the moment I give myself to God, I confess my sin, I repent, I ask Jesus to come into my life. What we're talking about here is the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And it's by the Holy Spirit being within the individual that the Holy Spirit enables one to live a Christian lifestyle, to resist temptation, to resist the evil one, and to walk in accord with their call of salvation. The Holy Spirit within someone is the one that gives them the power and ability to repent continually from sin and resist it. Okay? That's the Holy Spirit within. And Jesus has already breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is now the gifting of the Holy Spirit upon those on whom the Holy Spirit already resides within. You follow me? If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, asked him to come into your life, what has happened in that moment is he has given you the Holy Spirit resident within you. Okay? That's different than God's choice to give the Holy Spirit upon you. Most of you, if you're, well, all of you, if you're Christian, have received the Holy Spirit within you, but very few have spent time seeking Father that he would grace the Holy Spirit upon. And what happens is we become so accustomed to living with the Holy Spirit within as a Christian to make us better people and more polite and obedient and all that stuff we've missed the further role of the Holy Spirit to come upon. The reason why the Holy Spirit comes upon a person 
is not for your own weird experience, is not for the own expression of him. The only reason the Holy Spirit, God, grace of the Holy Spirit upon a person is so that person will then, in that moment, engage in a bold witness for Christ and his kingdom. Every time, at the Father's discretion, the Holy Spirit is given upon a person, it is given so that that person will boldly witness and boldly work for the kingdom. Every time. And that was the case here. We have to understand this, that the Holy Spirit is given at the discretion of the Father for kingdom purposes. There's nothing that we, there's no formula, there's no manipulation that a human does that works God into a frenzy to impart the Spirit upon anybody. It's not at our discretion, it's at the Father's discretion. And every time the Father chooses in his discretion to impart the Holy Spirit upon a person, it's always for the work of a bold witness and work for the kingdom of God and the testimony of Jesus. So our goal is to wait, just like he told these these 120, just wait. Go there and wait. Wait for what I will do. God chooses when and on whom to pour out his spirit upon The only thing we do is empty ourselves and wait. Not empty ourselves so we'll be empty, but empty ourselves and ask God and the Spirit to fill as he comes upon. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Listen. Jesus says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and all your parents do, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Not just for salvation, obviously, but to come upon for bold witness for. See, many people come to church and we want to add God to our story. And God says, I don't do that. I don't work that way. You don't add me to your story. You join your life to my story. And this is what so many people have gotten wrong in church. They come to church and stuff's out of whack and they want to add God to their story to make their story better in this world. And God says, you got it backwards. I'm not about your kingdom. You're supposed to be about my kingdom. So you take your life and your story, you add it to my story. And the only reason he will then pour out his spirit upon is so that we are a a powerful and bold witness for his story. Do you understand? This is the role of a disciple. And this is why I said last week, I don't know if we're ready for Acts. Because so many people want to go to this Bible and say, how do I make this get here so this is better? And God says, that's not the point. The point is you give yourself to me in my kingdom. And you desire my spirit upon your life so you'll be a bold witness for me in my kingdom. And in the midst of that, you start to discover your purpose. And you live for a kingdom that's far beyond this one. Follow me so far? 
Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from uh, every nation under heaven. This was, this was one of the three festivals that every able-bodied male Jew was supposed to travel to Jerusalem, and the women and children, if they could make the arduous journey, they were, they were to come to. When they had heard that sound, the sound of this wind, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. Now, I'm, I'm going to explain this. Just stick Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? I'll tell you about that in just a minute. Then, uh, then how is it that each, each of us hears them in our own native language? The Greek word, when it says their own language, it means dialect. So not only was it a different language, it was the correct dialect for that region of that language. I mean, they're getting really specific. Here's what's happening. All over the known world, these able-bodied Jews go to Jerusalem for the celebration. And they're outside this room, and they hear this wind blow through, and then suddenly they hear these languages being spoken. That's their own dialect. And they're like, how are they doing this? These guys are Galileans. Here's what they're saying. There's a bunch of rednecks. These are the Tavon Dillards of the world. Like, how are you? Like, they were born and raised in Chowchilla. How are they speaking French? Not only language, but dialect. Notice, what did they hear? They're hearing these languages. What Do you know what they heard? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. What they heard were people witnessing to how wonderful God is. These, the, the, this gift of tongues, this known languages, known dialects, proclaiming the goodness and the wonder and the glory of Almighty God. It was, all they were doing was praising God. There was no instruction. There was no message. There was no word of exhortation. There was no word of prophecy. There was, it was none of that. And, and so please understand, if you're ever in an environment, and I'm going to pray for you if you're getting one of those environments where someone starts going off and telling, you know, it, it, the, the only thing it will be used for is to praise and glorify God. There'll be no word of exhortation or prophecy or message. Because sometimes our human language is so limited and God's glory is so profound, sometimes our human language fails to express praise for who God is because he is so other than us. And there are sometimes in those moments where God says, I want to hear something in my language and I'm going to give you the opportunity to speak to me about how good I am in my own native tongue, God says. You see what I'm saying? And that's why Paul says, you don't ever do this in public when someone can't interpret it because it makes no sense to nobody. Just keep your mouth shut. So, that's what's happening here, okay? Amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what What does this, they should have known what this means. What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, ah, they had too much wine. Some of you have spoken in tongues when you have too much wine. <laughs> then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, what are you, he's calling them out right here. He said, you should know what's going on. You're Jews after all. You got the word of God. You should know what's going on. 
And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, he's not saying people don't drink before nine, because all of you COVID mamas, you started drinking at 7.30 during COVID. Okay, so he's not saying that people don't drink before nine. Here's what he's saying. For religious Jews, they prayed three times a day, at nine in the morning, at 12 noon, and at three in the afternoon. And for the devout Jews, they didn't eat or drink anything before the first prayer at 9 a.m. So what he's saying is these are devout men and women. They haven't had anything to drink because it's not even, they're not even past the first prayer hour. Okay, that's what he's saying. And then Peter starts just throwing down. And this man has become so eloquent, seemingly so educated. Before, he was, you know, foot and mouth disease, just like every time he opened his mouth, he put his foot in it. He was so arrogant. He was so ignorant. He was so, first time he quoted scripture was last week in Acts 1, after he walked with Jesus for three years, never ever quoted scripture. Now all of a sudden he's quoting scripture. And now at Acts 2, he is so eloquent. It, like there has been, a, when someone says, God, I am all in, do with me what you will, there is a profound change. It happened in my friend Mike Connor's life. Two and a half years walking with Jesus. I just did his service last Wednesday. And it was full of people who knew Mike Mike 1.0 and Mike 2.0. And they didn't have an explanation for Mike 2.0. And I got to be very bold in my explanation of what the change was. Because there's something that happens. You're just not the same. And if you are the same, nothing's happened. So Peter starts talking. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit in those days. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is really interesting because Peter introduces this, this idea, these last days. He says, in the last days, this will happen. Well, listen, this was the, in Acts 2, this was the first day of the last days. The last days started on that day. And we're still in the last days. And you might think, okay, pastor, I don't know what, what kind of math you learned, but 2,000 years is a lot of last days. You're right, it is. This was the first of the last day. We're still in the last days. Here's how God's economy works. The Bible says, theologically, that one day to God is 1,000 years to man, and 1,000 years to man is one day to God. So, so far, God's waited two days. You understand that? So, yeah, we're in the last days. And Peter says, in those last days, God will pour out his spirit upon. And everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There'll be a radical transformation if you call on the name of the Lord. And so I got to ask you, have you called on the name of the Lord? If you have, and you've opened yourself up to the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, there will be a radical change in your life, and you won't look like everybody else who hasn't. And if that doesn't define who you are, consider if you have.
Look at what Peter does, man. You fellow Israelites. Again, he's calling them out. You should know this. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. He said, you know what he did. You know his acts. You know his might. And God did that through him to draw you to him. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. His sovereignty took his son and gave him to you. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by the by nailing him to the cross but God raised him from the dead. Peter's throwing it down now. He says, God is sovereign, and it was his plan to give this innocent man to you evil people. And you denied him, and you rejected him, and you despised him, and you nailed him to a cross. But God's power and sovereignty was greater than your denial, and God beat death when he raised him from the dead. I don't know how Peter got so dang smart so quick. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. We all saw him. He, was, he resurrected for 40 days. We all saw him. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has what? Poured out what you now see and hear. It's all happening right before your eyes. The pouring out of the Spirit of God upon those whom have received the spirit within. God raised him to life. Again, the first fruits, that was the day of resurrection. That all who have the DNA of Jesus by faith have the DNA of resurrection within us. He was the first fruits guaranteeing our resurrection in the last day. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, what do we got to do? Here's what I know. When someone comes in contact with the Spirit of God, when it cuts them to the heart, the first response is, whatever you want, God. Whatever you want. And if our reaction and response to the Spirit of God is not whatever you want, there's a problem. Peter replied, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When God turns a heart towards him, that heart's response is whatever you want. What was Peter's first instruction to them? To what? Repent. That means to admit your sin and to turn from it. To admit, I'm walking away that is counter to you, God. I'm walking in a different direction than what you're walking. And repentance is turning around and starting to walk. Repentance is not proximity. Repentance is direction. We've got to understand that. See, we, we, we think walking with Jesus is proximity. But if Jesus is walking that way and I start walk, turn around to walk this way, I might be in close proximity, but I'm not in the right direction. Repentance is, is, is direction. So I may have walked all the way over here and Jesus is walking this way. And the moment I turn, even though I'm real far away, I've repented. Does that make sense? So it's a turning towards. 
The proximity he'll take care of. But repentance is turning towards. And he says, repent. Admit your sin. Go in the opposite direction. Every time I see, everywhere I look in the Bible, when repentance is present, transformation has come. And I I got to believe from Scripture that where transformation hasn't come, repentance hasn't been. And if repentance hasn't been, nor has salvation. Repent. God, whatever you want. God, I'm not asking you to join my story and make my story better. I want to join your story. And whatever I have to do to join your story, you got it. You understand? Repent. Now, he says repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. He doesn't mean so that your sin will be forgiven. The Greek context of that is repent because you've been forgiven, be baptized. That's how that sentence reads. And so I would ask you, if you have repented of your sin and not followed Jesus in baptism, why not? That's the outward expression of a changed life. That's the putting on the jersey. Now I'm part of the team. If you've not been baptized by immersion, which every Bible, every baptism in the Bible is by immersion, why not? Repent because you've been forgiven, baptized. With many other words, he warned them. And he pleaded with them. This is the heart of a pastor right here. Save yourselves. He's saying, I've been lost. And now I'm found. And I know what it's like to be lost. Save yourself. Save yourself for this corrupt generation, this culture that that doesn't understand the insidiousness of a demonic influence. Save yourselves from that. Repent. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about how many of them were added to their number that day? He says, save yourself. It's a choice of faith. How many were saved? You know what's significant about that number? It's a really big number. That's what's significant about it. There's something more that's significant. I I told you that I wanted you to remember what when I started this message? Pentecost. So to understand what's going on here, you got to go back to the Old Testament and remember Pentecost. Back to the festival. The rabbis taught that God gave the law of, of God to Moses. The law with all its expectations and ramifications. Gave that to Moses on Mount Sinai at, on the day of Pentecost. Okay? That's what they taught. During that story, if you go back, Exodus uh, 32, uh, you go back to that story. Moses is up on the mountain, and he comes down the mountain with the law of God, uh, the Ten Commandments, and all the regulations that were to govern the people's lives. And he comes down that mountain, and he, he left the people uh, under the charge of Aaron, the, the priest. Moses was up on that mountain for 40 days. And they got tired of waiting for him to come down. And so they're getting a little concerned. Maybe he died up there. We don't know what's going on. And so they get scared, and they ask Aaron to make for them uh, a god. 
that they can follow and worship. So Aaron takes all the gold that they had, because they, they, they walked out of Egypt with a lot of stuff, man. And so they threw this gold in the fire, and they make a, a calf out of it. And all these people see this golden calf, and they just get stupid. I mean, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a Catholic prom night. It's, they just get dumb. I'm kidding. I mean, they just are like, whoo. They're drinking, and they're dancing, and partying, and having sex with everybody. And they're just out of control. And Moses comes down this mountain. He's like, what the freak? On that day of Pentecost, at the giving of the law, that day about 3,000 people die. When God gave the law, now the ramifications of breaking that law were in place. And the result of law and the ramifications of law is death. How many? 3,000. And now at Pentecost, at the giving of the Spirit, the giving of God's mercy and grace through the death of His Son and the giving of the Spirit, now death has turned to life. How many are saved? The beautiful thing in this is God's story is always the story of redemption. God's story is always the story of life, not death. And we get to choose. I can marry myself to the law and its consequences of death, or I can marry myself to the Spirit of God, which gives life. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation and repent. And gain life. You understand? I know what time it is. And I know what's left in Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to save it for next week. This, I'm not even done yet, and you guys are walking out. Man, come back next week. We just got you on film saying you'll be here next week. We're going to be watching. All right? Gotcha. I'm going to take your pictures and put them up on the wall. Say, watch for these kids. Golly. I felt like I was doing pretty good. End of Acts chapter 2. We start to see the church fleshing out now what this means to be a disciple. Okay, this is going to be really important for us to get next week. I want you to read chapter 2 and read especially this last few verses, starting in verse 42 on. Because what we'll see is how the first church fleshed out what it meant to be a disciple. Read it not through the lens of what the church needs to do, because the church is comprised of whom? Read it through the lens of what you must become, not what the church must do. Because as the disciples of Christ become, the church does. But it doesn't start with the program of the church. It starts with the life of the disciple. And we're going to unpack this next week. And I might just spend all my time on those few verses because there's a lot there. Okay? With that, let me leave you with this. Girls, come on up here. If you've not yet invited God, Christ, through the presence of the Holy Spirit to take up residency in you, that's step one. But step two is why I say I don't know if we're ready for Acts. Because what it is to be a disciple is not to live a good moral life. 
That might be a byproduct, but that's not the point. The point is to be filled with and have the Spirit upon to be a bold witness for. That's the book of Acts. And probably some of you have been in church a very long time and never studied the book of Acts and never gave thought to the idea of praying that the Spirit would come upon you so that you would be a bold witness for. Every one of you, if you're a Christ follower, is going to walk into situations this week that require a bold witness for. You've already lived through them, and you probably never even recognize them because you didn't understand your responsibility. And I want to invite you, as Scripture has said, to invite the Holy Spirit upon and then wait for the opportunity knowing that God has done what he said he would do in his word, which is gift the Holy Spirit and put it upon you so that when you walk into those scenarios that require a bold witness, not an easy witness, but a bold witness, you already know the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you move in boldness. And you see first century stuff happen. So pray with me. you've not yet received the Holy Spirit within you for salvation, today is your day. And I would invite you in this moment to agree with God about who you are. I've agreed with Him already about who I am. And to say in this time, between you and the Father, I admit I'm a sinner. I've broken your law. I've walked my own way away from you. And today I repent. I change my direction. I want to go in your direction. I give you permission. I invite you to come in my life. Forgive my sin. And fill me with your spirit. Change me. Give me a new heart. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Give me a new heart. Give me the desire, the willingness to obey you. Give me a new heart. If you've done that already, this is your step now. If you have a relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit is within you, to pray according to what God has already said for that His Spirit will be upon you. And ask the Spirit directly Himself. Holy Spirit, convict me of my sin. Convict me of my lethargy. Convict me of my commonality. Convict me of my normalcy. Convict me of my pride. Convict me of my hubris. Convict me of thinking I got nothing to repent of. Convict me not for my shame or destruction, but convict me for my repentance. And in repentance, Holy Spirit, come upon me. Holy Spirit, come upon me that when I'm in those situations that calls for a bold witness, I will be that bold witness because you are on me. Father, your word says that your eyes range to and fro about the earth looking for those that you might strongly support those hearts who are fully yours. You've got some here in this place. Some of us are asking, Holy Spirit, that you come upon us so that we'll be a bold witness in those moments that call for it. 
Holy Spirit, I'm calling on you to do that which you said you would do come upon your people. That when we walk into situations that require a bold witness, that we would move in boldness in witness. We give you permission to come in us and upon us for kingdom's sake, not ours. We join our story to your story. We just want to be a part of your story. Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Spirit, we love you. Take up residence within us. We give ourselves to you. In your name I pray, amen. Listen, I love you. Acts are going to be fun. You're ready for it. Read chapter 2. Understand what the role of a disciple is and the role of the Father is and the role of the Spirit upon you is. And move boldly into it. And if you're not convinced of this yet, I'm so glad you're here. In your unconvincedness, show up. And just consider what God may do. Let's sing.